starts raining down my face in the tears of gratitude. And did you notice how just about 90 seconds ago, the rain was just cascading down <laughs> with rain and wind, and now it's not? It's kind of these gales. And then the sun comes out, and there's a little bit of blue sky, and then these gales. Is it like that on the inside a bit? Often these moments where the emotions just come in like a torrential downpour. You know, they can be both a blessing to be there, to be coming up, to be known, to be felt. Um, and it can be quite strong. You know, and then another moment, you're just having a bite of a roasted carrot doing okay. <laughs> a moment of blue sky. So, so there's a way we can just... Um, the changing weather patterns both internally and externally and both internally and externally. And it's like this, uh, the first day of a retreat. And, and I was reflecting upon the way that we speak about the first day of a retreat. It's always the first day of a retreat. Tomorrow's the first day of the second day of the retreat. The next day will be the third day of the first day, the first day of the third day of the retreat. You know, and for those of you who have sat several retreats, this is still the first retreat of this retreat. And whatever is happening for you or not happening for you, this is the retreat. Whatever your ideas may be, whatever your thoughts, whatever you like and don't like, like this here and now together in this room, this is the retreat. And it's no small thing to come into an environment like this where you probably have less control over conditions than you may in your daily life. You don't get to decide what's for dinner tonight. You're going to hear the bell <laughs> whether or not you want to. You know, we ask you to be here and show up in these ways. And there's a natural vulnerability in being here. If you were only just here physically, there would be a natural vulnerability in that. And being here, opening to the practice, opening more deeply to your experience and to practices that may be completely unfamiliar to you, there's a natural um, vulnerability. What one writer describes as a luminous, robust vulnerability. You had moments where you felt that today? And with vulnerability, it tends to be that we both yearn for it in ourselves and in others. We want it. But we also reject it because the ego's not running the show, you know, in moments of vulnerability. It undoes us in a certain way. And You know, we're really practicing here. The practices that we're doing here are to practice within these deep, deep habit patterns of the human heart-mind, which has everything to do with grasping and rejecting. And in our lives, we get what we want, we get what we don't want, and we often don't get what we do want. 
You know, and this is a path of happiness. Believe it or not, <laughs> the practices we're teaching you here have everything to do with happiness. Not just as an emotional state, not just as a, oh yeah, this person finally fell in love with me. Or, oh yeah, I finally have enough money. Yeah, but that kind of happiness that um, lives in being in non-contention with our experience. I was remembering my first meditation retreat, which I said a little bit about in the small group upstairs. And I was a full-time student in college and I was working full-time and I'd been practicing for several years before I sat my first retreat 25 years ago. And I knew something wasn't quite right because there was a feeling in my life that I couldn't sit still with myself. And I I was born and raised in Fargo, North Dakota, Fargo, like the movie, in a, a Unitarian Universalist family. We had a lot of liberal political discussions, but we weren't quiet together or with ourselves very much. It was very new to me. And I was just in so much pain the whole retreat. I went to my teacher and I said, I'm here to try to end suffering and get rid of suffering. And all I'm doing is suffering. Why would I stay here? I'm suffering, I'm suffering and suffering. And she kind of pointed her finger at me. I was strong and fiery. And she said, I said, you know, what, what's going on with the suffering? And she said, you should stay because it runs your life. And something in me dropped right there. It wasn't what I wanted to hear, but I knew she was right. And I stayed. And, um, and, you know, it was interesting because at the end of the retreat, I called my mom and I said, I'm never doing that again. And she said, you never have to do that again. <laughs> and then I was in the bathtub a few days later. And I had the thought, like, maybe I wonder when I'm going to do my next retreat. And it surprised me. But what had happened for me was that something had happened like in the marrow, in the bones of my being. It was hard. I didn't totally understand it. But there was like something was true there that I didn't quite have words for. And so it's one thing to have intellectual appreciation of the path, right? Oh, this, this mindfulness makes sense. And it's a totally another thing to actually be traveling the territory of staying with it, of opening your hearts, of sensing the body. And... with all that is difficult to see and hear in this world, with all that we don't want to see and hear that is true within the conditions of our communities, maybe our personal lives, you know, the world today, we need a reservoir of something that is not distraught in our own hearts. We need that to stay in the game. You know, we need that to have some dimension that is not pressurized. Otherwise, there's just a shutting down that happens. And it actually takes a lot of energy to shut down and stay shut down. I often have the image with the practice of a, you can imagine a, a swift moving current, the kind that would be like a class five current to paddle. And if there could be a bridge that went down, like a, 
if you've ever driven across a quickly moving river, you know, these bridges that go deep into the earth and they're, they're rooted, they're deep, they're strong. And this practice is building in us a kind of stability and ground that um, is something that we can come home to. And really, we're moving from a thought-based reality. Thoughts churn out our ideas of ourselves and one another and the world. Very, very powerful. They're not made of anything, but they're very powerful. And we're moving from a thought-based reality to a sense-based reality. And when we live in more of a sense-based reality, we are um, beginning to notice what we've been trained out of noticing. And there's great power in that. There's great reclamation in beginning to notice what we've been trained out of noticing. This is where we wake up to the knowledge that's already inside of us. That's really the work of, of mindfulness. Mind, and we say mindfulness, I don't love that translation. It's mind, heart, body, fullness. And what we're talking about, the actual root of the word that got translated as mindfulness, it's, it's, it's the word sati, S-A-T-I. It was in the, when these teachings were first written down, they weren't, they weren't written down the first 500 years, they were just spoken so beautiful, just spoken, spoken. Intonations, the vibration, the felt sense, and they got written down by the people in power. But the word, the word mind that's translated as mindfulness is the word sati. It means to remember. Not to remember your grocery list. Not to remember to ring the bell, do remember to ring the bells, but you know, not to remember all that kind of stuff, but to remember what? To remember what matters, to remember your heart, to remember this moment, to remember your own goodness. There's a 14th century um, Kashmiri saint and poet and mystic. I could say a lot about Lal Dead, also known as Mother Lala. And she left us these words. She left many words, but she left us these words. I was passionate. I searched far and wide. And the day the truth found me, I was at home. I was passionate. I searched far and wide. And the day the truth found me, I was at home. Do you have a sense of what she's pointing to? Because it's like that. The truth does find us. Insight arises, but it's not like we make it happen. You don't have to find presence. Let presence find you. She's, she's pointing to um, what we come to abide in more deeply, 
as we practice the art of remembering. Something that includes our stories. Our stories are so important in our lives and cultures, but it's deeper than our stories. It has a quality, a flavor of the sacred. There's some more Pali words. Um, yoniso is a Pali word. It means womb of awareness. The quality of awareness that we're pointing you to in the instructions is, um, let's say, a fascinating metaphor, womb of awareness. Awareness being the true womb. Manisikara means putting your attention in. So we say, yoniso manisikara. <laughs> you don't have to remember that. But the instruction is to place your attention in the womb of awareness, which takes a lot of trust. Because where we put our attention creates our world. Attention is a great, great gift. And if the attention is all over the place, there's no way the natural truth can find us. And so the instructions we've been giving you today are really around gathering, bringing the attention to one place so that you can understand and open and become more intimate with what's here for you. Not to keep what's here for you you away from yourself, but to actually... um, be able to touch and hold in a way that isn't quick and full of thought, but that's quite direct, quite vulnerable, in fact. And it's totally messy. We talk about all these numbers and lists, and it's really quite fluid, alive. This is a poem by Rosemary Watola Traumer, who lives pretty close to me in my neck of the woods in the southwest. It's called For When People Ask. I want a word that means okay and not okay. A word that means devastated and stunned with joy. I want the word that says I feel it all at once. The heart is not like a songbird singing only one song at a time, but more like a Tuvan-throat singer able to sing both a drone and simultaneously two or three harmonics high above it, a sound, the Tuvans say, that gives the impression of wind swirling among rocks. The heart understands the swirl how the churning of opposite feelings weaves through us like an insistent breeze leads us wordlessly deeper into ourselves, blesses us with paradox so that we might walk more openly into this world so rife with devastation, this world so ripe with joy. If you know of that word, please tell me that word for when people ask. I want to offer you two two words of instruction 
um, for your time here. I'll offer a lot more than two, but right now two. The first one is um, to practice how it is to linger. Most of us, many of us, myself at least, I'm trained in how to get stuff done. I was never trained in lingering, but I did linger as a child in the mountains all the time for hours and hours when we went to Montana. And stay longer than you need to with the rain, with your breathing, with the songs of the birds. Don't do it in the lunch line, but, but linger the rest of the time when you're not in meals. <laughs> linger. See what's revealed to you if you deliberately linger some. Most of the time when we keep going, it's just because that's what the nervous system knows. A second word is to behold. You can kind of be like, eh, in-breath, out-breath. <laughs> what if you behold one another, the land, yourself? Like as if the statues, which we'll say more about in the, in the front, which represent qualities of deep, deep wisdom and love. Like if, if they could behold you, and if you could behold your own experience, the behold your own outrage, behold the movement of the trees, quality of reverence that doesn't leave anything out. It's not like just beholding what we think is so rainbows and unicorns. Like behold all of it, you know, even the, the tough stuff, to, be, to linger and to behold. See what happens. A few more words before Cyrus shares. Um, yesterday was the seventh anniversary of the death of my mother. A meaningful day for me. And quite auspicious that it was the day that this particular retreat opened. And my mother died of a rare and aggressive form of cancer. You know, and as I speak of cancer, it's, I wonder if there's any woman in the room whose life has or has not, has, has not been directly or indirectly touched by the presence of cancer. And um, I was with her very intimately. Thank you. Thank you throughout the process, and um, it was really something else to um, be with this being who brought me into this life, you know, midwifing her uh, out of this life. And it was a very, very difficult experience that was profound, and certainly the greatest teaching um, of my adult life by far the greatest teaching of my adult life, the absolute crucible that took me to the um, very end of what I actually thought I could hold. And I can't tell you how many times I had the thought that um, 
If this was all my decades of practice had prepared me for, it would have been worth every moment. Really. And I have no idea how I could have been with her on the level that she needed without the depth of this practice, you know, without having practice in being here and now, really, without getting in my own way so much. And it was interesting because she wanted me there. And it wasn't because of me, it was because of the Dhamma. And at the, you know, the last months of her life, she started getting interested in mindfulness. And she said, Aaron, I think you might know something about this. I was like, Mom, I'm teaching these long retreats all over the place. And it was like, she just woke up to that. But it was interesting that she got interested in it at the end of her life. She was so seeking a way to have some measure of peace, you know, with something that was really, really, um, you know, devastating. And, and, and there's a way that we don't really have to wait till the end of our lives, you know? And being with her in that journey centered for me so deeply why I do this practice. You know, it's like, it's, a, it's not just about becoming more calm. It's really about living fully. Living fully, not knowing of a better way to live or a better way, way to die. In this profound and subtle territory, in the profane and the sacred that is the truth of, of our lives. She said, um, so I was doing this practice with her, and I never told her I was doing it, but I was, I was she, she, um, I was doing a practice around Thich Nhat Hanh's energy with my mother. I was like, who, you know, what kind of energy does she need to support her in this practice? And I thought, she needs this calm of Thich Nhat Hanh, that deep, calm abiding. And so she, and I would just sit and do this practice with Thich Nhat Hanh's presence in her. And one day when she was on, the, on a lot of morphine, she started saying, hello, hello. I said, mom, mom, what's going on? And she said, someone's calling me. And I said, who's calling you? And she said, a new friend. And I said, who's your new friend? And she said, a Vietnamese man. It's like a school teacher from Fargo, North Dakota. She got it. And like, she got it. It's just an opening to the, you know, the incredible mystery that holds our lives. You know, opening to notice and touch and allow and love um, and get out of a narrow experience. Reality is not narrow. So I just say a few words about her in honor of her and in my own um, confidence in, in this practice. Thank you for your kind attention. I'm so happy to get to be up here with you, Saira.
when uh, Aaron and I were kind of chatting about what we were going to talk about, she turns to me and she says, Oh, you know, Sarah, maybe we should say, try to say something useful. <laughs> so I'm going to try to say something useful. We'll see. I actually um, spent time earlier today um, putting together some stuff, and I completely scrapped it. Um, I have so much I want to tell you. I have so much I want to say to you. But I only have about 20 minutes. So I'm just going to tell you a story, and we'll go from there. Um. <clears throat> When I was a teenager, I think I was probably maybe 17 or 18. Um, so just a decade ago. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was having some trouble. I was having some difficulty as a young person. And uh, we had a family friend who lived in Hawaii. And so my mother... Uh, thought there would be a good idea for me to go spend summer there, spend some time in Hawaii and just get away from um, whatever, social circle, whatever it was I was doing. I was into it. So, um, you know, we scraped together the, the money, the funds, and we got me on a plane, and I went out there to Hawaii to stay with a family friends that I really enjoyed. And when I was in Hawaii... Um, I rented a mountain bike. I rented it for pretty much the whole time I was there. And that's how I got around. Um, I rode this bike around. And um, it was super cool because it was all tactile to me. It was really, really neat being there. And one morning I went out. It was summertime. I really didn't have um, anywhere to go in particular. I was just exploring and um, there was a school, I, I don't know what, if it was a high school or elementary near um, uh, where I was. And so I was riding and jumping the bike around. And uh, there were like, you know, those red clay um, hallways that were kind of fun to ride around on. And um, I looked out and I saw this rainbow. And it's always raining in Hawaii on the big island. On the heel side, it's always raining pretty much every day, and it's always sunny. It's always hot. So um, you get rainbows. And at that age, I didn't know that you can't actually get to the end of a rainbow. <laughs> and I had a really great idea. Light bulb went off, and I was like, I know what I'll do today go find the end of that rainbow. I think I see it touching down. It's not too far away. And so off I went. And really I spent maybe half the day, maybe four hours or so. Um, it was a really great day. Um, you know, I went um, through orchards and, um, you know, I found a, a coffee farm and a chocolate factory. I ate sugar cane. I found horses in a meadow. It was really, really great. 
And uh, every time, though, when I thought, well, there it is. There's the, there's, I could see it touching down. Ride my bike up to it, and it would jump. You know, okay, so it's just over the this this next hill. And I would ride my bike, but there would be something neat and cool for me to do in between. And so finally I say to myself, well, if it jumps one more time, I'm, I'm, that's it, I'm done. And I see it. I see it. It's right in the middle of this field. It's wide open. There's no way it can escape me now. So I drop my bike, and in Hawaii there's smells. It's very moist. It's rich. It's lush. And so it's um, this field, and I, I drop my bike, kind of like bush. And I bound into it, and I'm running. And I get to the center, and I look up, and the rainbow has, you know, it's in the middle of the ocean now. It's just gone, and I'm just like, forget it. It's on Mount Olympus. You know, there's all the clouds. And I look up, and I see that the rainbow is stretched out right above me. And I'm in the middle of this field, and I suddenly notice that there's just, wildflowers everywhere and this it's like silent it's just quiet and there's just this light breeze that is suddenly i'm just feeling it's like you know the light of a rainbow how it's so surreal and i'm in it and um and this clouds are like explosions etched in stone, right? The sky, just stillness. And there's this one little cloud floating so low, I, you could really reach out and touch it. It was just kind of floating by. And I'm looking at the rainbow, and it wasn't gases, but it looked like, um, it kind of looked like gases kind of moving around in the light. And it became brighter and brighter, and it actually became a double rainbow right above me. And there's these weird little buzz bugs. I don't know what they are in Hawaii. And that was like the only real sound. And so I'm standing there, and I realize I have been so consumed with seeking the end of the rainbow that I, I didn't notice what was, what was just right in front of me, all around me. So I and I sat there, and I absorbed the moment. I had my little tears of joy. And I, um, I decided to turn around, get my bike, and go home. And the moment I did that, I turned around to look at the rainbow one more time. It was gone, and it started to just pour down for rain. Yeah. Yeah, so life is kind of like this. It's kind of like this. We chase the rainbow. Not taste the rainbow. Skittles got that for me. We, we chase the rainbow. There's um, something that we work with in this practice. And this is the stuff that really just leads us around all day, every day. All day, every day. It's that hamster wheel. It's that carrot. 
never happy, never satisfied. And we're here in this practice developing the capacity just to stop and notice the wildflowers, notice the rainbows in our lives, all around us. Unfolding each moment, we have the opportunity to be with this divine, sacred miracle that is unfolding. Often we are um, missing it. It's a part of our. Um, it's a part of our conditioning or our. Um, Part of our conditioning as humans. And so we do this. We do this, we do this grasping and clinging. Attachments, desires. One of the, well, actually the Buddha's first teaching. And by the way, there are many Buddhas. Buddha is a, is a word that means an enlightened being. This is the, with the Buddha that we know, um, Siddhartha Gautama. Shakyamuni Buddha. This is the Buddha of our, our time, of our, um, you know, 20, 2,600 years ago. But there are eons of Buddhas. Each have this capacity. So, so um, the Buddha's first teaching is this teaching on the truths, what we call the four truths, the four noble truths. It's actually a part of a, a, um, a larger teaching, a sutta called the Dharma Chakra uh, Pravatana Sutra. But this is the distilled version, the four truths, what um, we call four noble truths. And so this is what he attained. When he attained, this is what he, his insight was, these truths. And he decided, he almost didn't teach them, but he decided Maybe people will understand this. Maybe I can teach this. And so he did. And immediately um, began freeing hearts and minds. And so it's this teaching around this thing that we do, this grasping and clinging to anything else. We want to be doing anything other than what we're doing. We want to be our bodies. Want We want them different. We want bigger and different homes, or we want um, a different relationship, even if our relationship is just fine. Maybe we're just bored, right? We are always just seeking. Or maybe um, um, things aren't as we'd like them, um, or maybe things are as we'd like them to be, and we are clinging. We get fearful, we get contracted. And we do this, and so very rarely are we just here and present and open to receiving what is arising in our lives. Regardless, it's a myriad of experience. We have these human lives, these rare and precious human lives that have been gifted us, and, and it's a full package. We have a full range of experience. And so um, 
Sometimes not easy, sometimes challenging, sometimes difficult, sometimes not the way we imagined, sometimes not the way that we wanted it or that we wanted. I like to think of, of those types of experiences as just the right experiences that we need, that I need to soften and open my heart in this life. Just the right challenges, just the right difficulties to soften and open my heart so that I might live with uh, greater ease, freedom in this life. See, what would be the thing? The last few minutes. I've been actually, um, I want to tell you about this. We'll be working with mandalas. Our egos can become so stuck on wanting things to be a particular way. We do this. We become attached to things. Um, we develop and create these beautiful, intricate webs, our lives, all around us. And what do we do? We grasp, we cling. And it's this action, it's this impulse, um, these impulses that are the heart of much of our um, unhappiness or dis-ease in this life. I read a teaching that likened the lives that we create to Tibetan sand mandalas. And um, in Tibetan Buddhism, um, sand mandalas, um, you'll see the monks um, creating them. Um, you know, if you go to the, to the east or, um, you know, maybe Nepal or somewhere where uh, you can go to these temples. And so, uh, or even in, in Tibet, if you happen to make it there. Um, and so, they can take hours, they can take days, they can take weeks. And they're chanting the whole time, very mindful, very intricate. And, um, and when they're done, when they're done creating these mandalas, they destroy them. They destroy them. And, uh, and this symbolizes the reality of impermanence. We know this. We know that everything in this life arises and passes away. Our entire galaxy is this moment marching into a supermassive black hole. We know this. Everything will one day come to an end. Um... So our tendency to want to hold on or want to control circumstances that are constantly changing is the cause of much of our suffering in this life, our discontent, our unhappiness. Never just right. Um, so we build our own sand mandalas over many years and decades. We become intricate and complex. 
And we begin to believe that these mandalas define us. We can become stuck and stifled. Um, The complexity can hinder our growth and keep us from experiencing a sense of freedom, keep us um, from uh, growing, from even seeing the possibility of new things or um, freedom. There is a very real freedom in this life that is truly yours. And so we must begin to look deeply in order to see the truth of what what stifles us, what keeps us stuck. Some of the things that we really believe will make us happy. Actually, the cause, they actually bind us to unhappiness, to suffering, to difficulty. Somewhere in us, we know this. We know this to be true. We can see stuckness. And sometimes we just don't know how to how to get out. So we begin, we begin with awareness, awareness practice, mindfulness, looking deeply, seeing the truth of things. So we can we can begin and you will see as you settle more fully and more deeply on this retreat. But really looking deeply into your desires, sitting with desire, see how it works, get underneath, see what's living in there, see what's driving this being. And we have a little more choice, we have a little more... um, um, actually power in the moment, being in the present moment. So I'm going to read you. I'll leave you with a poem. This is The Great Bell Hooks. It's short and sweet. In love, there are no closed doors. Each threshold an invitation to cross, take hold, take heart, and enter here. At this point, where truth will not be denied. So let's sit for like one minute, yes?
So go lightly, go kindly, go patiently. Enjoy your dinner. Yeah.